Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Church at Home. Uh, my name is Simon Clegg and I'm the pastor of St Barnabas Bible Church here in Cape Town, South Africa. If you're with us for the first time, we're absolutely delighted that you've joined us and I do hope by the grace of God that our study this morning will be a blessing and an encouragement to you even as you continue in fellowship with a local church. We're very excited this morning to be announcing that uh, we are resuming in-person services at our church building in Weinberg on Sunday the 1st of November. And uh, there are two things you need to know about that. Uh, first, we are going to continue to live stream our services for the benefit of those who are vulnerable to infection from the virus uh, or for those who might be self-isolating. But second, uh, because we're absolutely committed to your safety and to obeying the laws and the guidelines of our country, uh, if you're planning to join us, can we please ask you to fill out and submit uh, a form for each person attending, including your children. You can do this online and uh, you'll find a link to the form at the homepage of our website www.sbbc.org.za and I do hope you can come along on the first. But now as we begin can I invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark to chapter 9 and verse 2 and before I read the text and, and uh, bring a message to you I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's help. So won't you bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Well our gracious Heavenly Father you have promised to be with your church watching over us, protecting us, providing all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you know our past and understand it completely, that you know our needs and are able to meet them adequately, and that you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it perfectly. So will you come to us now and speak to us by your Spirit through your word, that each of us might be conscious that we're listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus, calling us now to follow him into the future. In his name we ask it. Amen. So Mark chapter 9, reading from verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain uh, where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, uh, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? 
Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they've done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Well, just so far in God's holy and inerrant word. Now, every year uh, we celebrate two major events in the life of Jesus. At Christmas we celebrate his birth and at Easter we celebrate his death and resurrection. But in the early church they also celebrated a third event. It's the event described in our passage this morning, the event that we know as the Transfiguration. The early church considered it to be sufficiently important to justify its own special festival. And even today in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they celebrate the Transfiguration every year in August. But we don't do that. And uh, I want to suggest that we are the poorer for it for at least two reasons. First, about a hundred years ago, some of the leading thinkers in the church at that time decided that Christianity was in trouble. They said modern people can no longer accept the supernatural. Uh, science has persuaded them that miracles can't happen. And so these people said, if Christianity is going to have a future, uh, if it's going to exercise any ongoing influence in the world, we've got to take everything supernatural out of the Bible, including events like the Transfiguration. It seems, doesn't it, that no one paused to consider that if you eliminate everything supernatural from Scripture, very little remains. Jesus becomes simply a great teacher. The resurrection becomes just a symbol of a new beginning. And becoming a Christian is no longer a matter of being born again by the Holy Spirit. No, it's simply a case of being a good person. Well, a hundred years later, I think the results speak for themselves. In all the countries where they've de-supernaturalized Christianity, churches are in terminal decline, and the people in church are either spiritually dead or spiritually starving. By contrast, in those places where they have held on to the Bible's testimony to the supernatural power of God, the church is actually alive and growing fast. The second reason why we should celebrate the Transfiguration is because it strengthens Christians to follow Jesus. If we dismiss it or we ignore it, we actually deprive ourselves of a God-given source of encouragement for living the Christian life. Now why do I say that? Well, last week we saw that the path of discipleship for the Christian is very challenging. Jesus said if we're going to be his followers, we've got to declare our exclusive allegiance to him and be willing to face the consequences. That's what Jesus meant when he said we are to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. Now that's not going to be easy. And the only way that any of us are going to be able to do it is if Jesus opens our eyes to see what life is going to be like in the future. If we're going to follow Jesus through all the trials and difficulties that are an unavoidable part of Christian experience, 
we do need some evidence that what Jesus says about the future really is true. Now that is the point of the Transfiguration. This uh, remarkable event is recorded in three of the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke. And Peter, one of the three disciples who were there, writes about it (coughs) in his second letter, where he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, this is a historical event. Uh, Peter says, we were there, we saw what happened. And uh, what's going on here is that the three disciples with Jesus are being given a preview of Jesus' resurrection and the glory that will follow. And it comes at a time when things were looking particularly bleak. So for the next few minutes, I want to try and show you three things about this preview. At first, it is a very loving preview. Second, it is a packed preview. And thirdly, it's a very demanding preview. So let's look at these three things together. First of all, it's a very loving preview. And the reason it's a very loving preview is because in chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus has just told the disciples that he's about to suffer and be rejected and die. And last week we saw that he's going to die on the cross, the cross of salvation. So this is a very sober moment. And as if that were not hard enough for the disciples, in verse 34, Jesus says, you followers are going to have to deny yourselves, take up your cross, the cross of discipleship, and follow me. Now I think it's probably very difficult for us to imagine ourselves back into that situation but they must have been terrible words for the disciples to hear. Uh, It's finally dawned on you that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the king of God's kingdom with irresistible kingly power. But no sooner have you got that message than Jesus says, I'm about to die. And you followers, well, in a sense, you are going to die as well. So these are, I think, very sober and serious and disturbing words from Jesus. And you know, even today, I don't think that we hear these words very clearly. I think we tend to rewrite them in our minds so that we end up with a kind of cosy contract with Jesus, which goes something like this. Lord, uh, let me get this straight. Uh, You're going to bless me in every conceivable way. That's the deal, isn't it? That's your job. And my job is that I'm going to agree that you're real and you're good. I think that is the kind of cosy contract that many people have with Jesus in their minds. But of course it's not the agreement at all. That is not the contract Jesus has with us. No, he says quite clearly, I'm going to die for you at incredible eternal cost and you are going to live for me at significant personal cost that's the contract Jesus has with us and anything else we might make up is pure fantasy so it's a very striking and sobering moment when Jesus says this 
And now with great love for these shocked disciples and with great love for us who read the Bible and have the same message, he provides a preview of his glory. And he does this to keep his disciples going. And I think that's a very wonderful thing, isn't it? That Jesus would be so concerned for those around him who've just heard the seriousness of Messiah's death and that disciples have got to carry their cross, that he would deliberately and lovingly say to them, but this is where we're going. This is what the end looks like. This is why it's worth it. Here's a picture of me in glory, and you are going to be there with me. That's what this is all about. So he's told them the road that he must walk, And he's told them the road that they must walk. And look at what he said in chapter 9 and verse 1, which we read last week. Chapter 9, verse 1. Some who are standing here, says Jesus, will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, what was Jesus talking about? The interesting thing is that as soon as he says this, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, Jesus immediately goes to the Mount of Transfiguration and he shows them something of his kingly power. Of course, his kingly power is going to be seen at the Transfiguration. But his kingly power is also going to be seen at his uh, crucifixion when he purchases our forgiveness. His kingly power will be seen at the resurrection when he rises from the dead. His kingly power will be seen on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down. And his kingly power will be seen when he returns to earth in great glory on the last day. But some who were standing in front of him when he said it will see his kingly power because the three of them will see the transfiguration. Even more of the disciples will see the crucifixion and the resurrection and even more of them will see the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But I guess we can say none of them, none of them standing before Jesus that day, would live until the day of his return. So here, Jesus is helping some very key disciples. He wants them to stay excited and motivated on the path of discipleship. So he very lovingly lifts the veil on the future, and gives them a preview of his glory. Now, don't you and I do something like this sometimes? So, for example, we might say to a child before their first day at preschool, don't worry about it. You're going to have a great time. You're going to make lots of new friends. And when we do that, we're giving them a little preview. Or perhaps a friend is visiting Cape Town for the first time, and uh, we say to them, you really must go up Table Mountain. But they've heard that the queues are very, very long and uh, the cost is really, well, it's pretty expensive. So we show them a photo of the view from the top and we say, you know what, it really is worth it. Or we say to a person with a serious operation coming up, you know, I had that surgery and today I'm stronger and I'm better for it and you will be too. So can you see that in normal everyday life we sometimes give people a picture of the future in order to help them get through a difficult or rather uncertain time in the present. 
Now that's what Jesus is doing here. He's providing a loving preview, a reliable preview of his glory, so that his disciples don't lose heart. And that's the first thing to understand about this marvellous experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is a loving preview. But secondly, it's a packed preview. Come with me to verse 2. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him, led them up a high mountain, where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Now friends, every single word in that account is significant. So why, for example, does it say that Jesus did this after six days? Well, no doubt it was because it was six days after the conversation at Caesarea Philippi. But is it not also significant that when Moses went up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, it was after six days that God called to Moses and God revealed himself to him. And here is Jesus much later going up a different mountain, probably Mount Hermon, and after six days revealing himself in glory to these disciples in order that they would write about it and strengthen followers of Jesus in every generation, including you and me this morning. Well, then we read that Jesus was transfigured on a mountain. But why a mountain? Well, in the Bible, mountains are places where important things happen. So, Jesus prayed on a mountain. He preached from a mountain. He appointed disciples on a mountain. He died on a mountain. And then afterwards, he commissioned his disciples on a mountain. And here, he reveals himself on a mountain. And the word transfigured is a strange word. It means literally that Jesus was transformed. And uh, the glory that was inside Jesus, that was a fundamental part of him, was suddenly revealed to these disciples to see. Uh, until then they'd only seen Jesus in his flesh. But here the veil is lifted and they see him as he really is in his true glory. I'm sure you'll remember that when Moses came down the mountain he had a kind of reflected glory and his face shone for a little while. But Jesus has, if you like, personal glory. It's a part of him. And uh, the Gospel writers struggle to describe this glory because it's supernatural. Uh, it's a brightness. Uh, it's a brilliance. It's a blaze that's way beyond human words to describe. But uh, in Acts chapter 26, the Apostle Paul says that when he came face to face with Jesus on the Damascus road, he saw a light that was brighter than the sun. So this word transfigured, I think, is an attempt to describe the way that Jesus was transformed to reveal his true glory, what he's really like, his inner glory, to these three disciples. Now, very interestingly, this word transfigured is also used of Christians on two occasions in the New Testament. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're told that Christians are being transfigured 
or transformed step by step slowly but surely into the likeness of Christ from one degree of glory into another and then in Romans chapter 12 we're told that we are to be transfigured or transformed same word by the renewing of the mind now that of course is why we gather on Sundays to hear the word of God in order that our minds might be literally transfigured that's why Christians read the Bible regularly for themselves so that our minds might be transformed or transfigured and shaped by Holy Scripture so this glory that is revealed to the disciples is glory that belongs to the Creator and we are told aren't we that this is a glory that is going to be shared with all God's people Notice also that Jesus has two Old Testament characters with him on the mountain, Moses and Elijah. Peter seems to recognise them, we don't know how. Now Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, which both point to Jesus. So if we summarise the law, the law says, actually you can't keep the law, you need a saviour. And the prophets say, you need a preacher to bring God's word to you. So both the law and the prophets were pointing to Jesus, who of course does both of those things perfectly. Please don't think that Moses and Elijah are here to lend some kind of credibility to Jesus' resume or CV. Jesus does not need their endorsement. Rather, Moses and Elijah are rather like little spotlights pointing at Jesus and saying this is our God come into the world revealing his splendour and his glory and friends isn't it a very joyful thing that Moses and Elijah who had disappeared hundreds of years before in quite unusual circumstances Moses of course being buried in such a way that no one really knew what happened and Elijah being transported out of the world in the most supernatural way, is it not a very joyful thing that both of them have turned up here alive and well? They are perfectly safe and perfectly secure. And you see, you and I who've lost loved ones, special people, we're meant to take heart from this particular scene. And when we wonder where our beloved friends and family have gone, the Bible tells us and this scene reminds us that they are safe and sound in the care of Jesus Christ I'm sure you noticed that this is another embarrassing moment for the Apostle Peter uh, because we see in chapter 9 verse 5 that he doesn't know what to say so instead of saying nothing which might have been better he blurts out well let's build three tents one for you Jesus, one for Moses and one for Elijah and uh, we're told in verse 6 Peter didn't actually know what he was talking about he just said the first thing that came into his head uh, interestingly a friend of mine in the UK says that on one occasion uh, he was attending a church service where the archdeacon was preaching apparently this man wasn't a Christian but uh, he took Peter's words in Mark chapter 9 verse 5 as his Bible text and he concluded from it that the goal of Christianity was to construct more buildings. 
My friend says it would have been terrific if he'd gone on to verse 6 and said, I don't really know what I'm talking about. Unfortunately, he didn't. But then suddenly, in verse 7, a great cloud appeared. Now again, this is a highly significant symbol in the Old Testament. So you remember there was the cloud in the wilderness, there was the cloud on Mount Sinai, and clouds in both the temple and the tabernacle. And in each case, the cloud was a symbol of God's powerful presence. <clears throat> and here, a cloud envelops them on the mountain. And out of the cloud came a voice, and the voice said, This is my son, whom I love, listen to him. Now friends, that of course is the key to, the, to discipleship, and I do hope everyone understands this, that the key to being a follower of Jesus is to be a good listener to the words of Jesus. You know, if we wait for visions, we aren't going to make much progress. The vision on the Mount of Transfiguration was an exception. It was, if you like, a concession granted to three men so they could record their experience of the glory of Jesus for our benefit. But you and I are not meant to live our lives waiting for visions. We're going to live our Christian lives by listening very carefully to the words of God. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we don't walk by sight. We don't expect visions and things appearing in the sky. No, we live by faith and by the promises of God in his word. Now, I wonder if there's someone listening this morning and maybe you're feeling that your life has become rather aimless and perhaps you've missed the whole point of Christianity. Maybe you're thinking that. Well, if that's you, I want to say to you this morning that the solution is very simple. It is to take extremely seriously the words of Jesus Christ. Listen to him. Hear him say things like this. Come to me and I will give you rest. I have chosen you. Abide in me. Love one another. Be a witness, and I will provide everything you need. Now you see, friends, these are the words that we need to have filling our heart and our mind in order that we can walk faithfully and securely with Jesus. When Peter wrote his second letter, and he wrote about this experience on the mountain, he went on to say, you will do well to pay attention to God's word, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now that is Peter's way of saying keep on reading your Bible until your mind has been transformed by God and until the day when you see Jesus face to face. Because you and I need the promises of God in his word every single day of our earthly pilgrimage and when God called out on the mountain listen to my son in verse 7 well the, the vision was immediately over there was nothing else to see now they walked down the mountain Jesus and the three disciples and that brings us to our third point this morning because this is a loving preview yes it is 
It is a packed preview. Yes, it is. But thirdly, it is also a very demanding preview. Why is that? Well, because it's a preview. Uh, it's not going to happen immediately. Uh, seeing Jesus in his ultimate glory is still out there in the future. But the future is entirely secure. It's very wonderful. But the situation in the present can be very demanding indeed. So look at the brief conversation as they come down the mountain in chapter 9 and verse 9. Jesus says, don't mention this experience to anybody. I don't know about you, but I think if this weren't so serious, it would actually be rather amusing. I mean, imagine the three disciples returning home and uh, the other nine saying, well, where have you guys been? And uh, back comes the reply, well, uh, nowhere special. Um, Have you seen anything? No. Uh, Have you had any unusual experiences? Uh, Not especially. I mean, it must have been really difficult for those three, don't you think? But Jesus says, don't say anything about it until after my death and resurrection. And you can talk about it then because it will make much more sense to you. Now look at their question in verse 11. As they're walking down the mountain, they say to Jesus, and obviously keep in your mind they've just seen Elijah, which I guess must have been a mind-boggling experience. They say, Jesus, why does it say that Elijah must come first? Well, at the end of the Old Testament, it says that Elijah will come and restore everything. But behind the question of the disciples here, there is actually a very interesting and rather confused question. Because they're basically saying this. Listen carefully. If it says, Jesus, that Elijah is going to come before you and he's going to get everything ready and if Elijah has come and everything is ready, well, why are we talking about suffering? Why don't you get on your throne, put on your crown and we'll sit next to you? That's basically the idea behind their question. And Jesus replies in verse 12, well, yes, Elijah did come first. Now, you've got to put your thinking caps on here because Jesus is now talking about John the Baptist. And the reason is that at the end of the Old Testament, it says someone like Elijah will come. And John the Baptist was just like Elijah. He had the same message, he ate the same food, and he wore the same clothes. So John the Baptist has come. He's got everything ready because he prepared the people for the imminent arrival of the Messiah. He called them to repent. Multitudes did. And Jesus says in verse 12, well look, if that came true, well, you need to grapple with this prediction from the scripture that the Son of Man must also suffer. And the reason, of course, is that nothing will be solved for sinful people unless the Son of Man suffers and dies and rises and offers forgiveness. And so Jesus goes on to say in verse 13, if you think suffering is wrong and that it's not part of God's plan, you need to think about what happened to John the Baptist. Because for him, being faithful cost him his life. And in the same way, says Jesus, I, the Son of Man, will also be killed 
and for you who follow me it's going to be the road of suffering so friends can you see we've got to get the sequence absolutely clear in our minds it won't help us when people say well once you get Jesus uh, once you understand who he is your life is going to be smooth and trouble free that is profoundly unhelpful and profoundly wrong no the sequence is number one understand who Jesus is number two put your faith in him and his cross number three carry your cross and number four in the future there is an absolutely certain and wonderful crown awaiting you so the road of salvation is a costly road but at the end of the road there is a greater glory than any of us could possibly imagine and that is the path my friends of Christian discipleship so as we close this morning uh, let me tell you about a man called John Coleridge Patterson John Coleridge Patterson was a schoolboy at Eton in the 19th century uh, he was a fabulous cricketer he was captain of cricket uh, he went to Oxford and after he graduated he went as a missionary to the islands in the South Pacific and he was absolutely gripped by Isaiah 53 which says that all people have gone astray and the Lord has laid all the sins of all people on the suffering servant who has been sacrificed in their place and John Coleridge Patterson was absolutely gripped by that all have gone astray but all can be saved through the gospel and so he went to the South Pacific, Pacific as a missionary he had a very courageous uh, ministry he visited most of the islands and uh, in due course he was appointed as the bishop of what we know as Melanesia he was totally unafraid of the spears of the islanders and when he visited an island he would leap out of the boat and he would hug and embrace the people he learned 23 of the local languages and he gave all of his fortune and all of his savings to the work of the mission and he was deeply deeply loved now by this time the slave trade had been outlawed but for some time it continued to operate illegally in certain places so in due course uh, some slave traders arrived in Melanesia and they tricked the islanders by imperson impersonating John Patterson now they knew how popular he was so some of them dressed like him in clerical clothing and when they landed on the islands uh, they captured the natives and took them away into slavery now when John Patterson heard about this he went to one of the islands where this, has hap where this had happened uh, it was called Norfolk Island and in revenge the natives attacked him and killed him he was just 44 years old so having put his trust in Jesus Christ who died for him he himself died in the service of Jesus and just as a little aside I'm sure you'll be interested to know that the church on Norfolk Island that is dedicated to his memory is called St Barnabas but I think when you read about his life it's hard isn't it not to think well what a sadness what a loss doesn't really make sense does it that someone so able so loving so faithful would have his life cut short 
But you see, Jesus Christ says that is what Christianity is all about. It's getting salvation from him which will last for eternity. But it may well be that in the path of discipleship there will be cost and there will be loss. But you see, John Coleridge Patterson knew that at the end of the road what is guaranteed is the glory which Jesus has secured by dying on the cross. And Jesus gave a wonderful preview of that when he stood on the mountain and was transfigured in order that you and I might have confidence in our future and keep going as Christian people all the way to the end. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Our gracious God, we thank you for this tremendous reminder in your word that up ahead for your people the Lord Jesus is ruling and reigning in great glory with great love and power. We ask that you would give to your people patience and faithfulness as we walk the road of discipleship. And we pray that you would give to all who are listening this morning a confidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Saviour, the King, and that trusting him and following him, they might know in their hearts that all is well. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.